Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians 2. We will read something challenging today, not that we haven't in previous weeks, but this has been a very gospel-oriented book, and now we will read um, what we might rightly classify as transformative instruction. In other words, what we read today um, is more in the vein of um, correction and instruction than a call to salvation. Now, it is linked to the call to salvation, which we'll see. But if you're going to get what you should get out of this morning's message, you have to be willing to think through changes that might be required, which I know isn't easy. Let's, re- let's read beginning in verse 12. And we will go all the way through verse 18. Uh, 12 and 13 will be review, and then we'll hit the new stuff. Okay? Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do, For his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless, children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, And if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, then I am glad and rejoice with you all. For the same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And that's as far as we'll go. Um, I don't want to read too much into the text, but I will say this. There is at least to me the suggestion in the way Paul is writing and what he's describing here, that what he had heard about the church in Philippi or his concerns about the church in Philippi were at least in part along the lines of uh, perhaps they were not a very happy people. Um, That um, there might have been some folks among them who were miserable and, and not rejoicing. One of the themes of Philippians is his call for them, again, to rejoice. Rejoice. Shows up in Philippians chapter 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's this book. We know he is aware of some disputes among members in their church as he tells them to reconcile and to do what's right. Um, And this morning we get the instruction, do all things without complaining and disputing. And, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that you say to folks who might be complaining and disputing. Um, It's not in every, that instruction right there, it's not in every single letter in the New Testament, but we find it here in in the instruction to the church in Philippi. So to set the stage for it, verses 12 and 13, which we covered two weeks ago, is, look... um, You all need to work out your salvation in fear and trembling, which I tried to make the point meant 
You need to live out your faith. You need to live out your salvation with the sort of reverence towards God, with a fear and trembling towards the fact that it is, as it says in verse 13, God who is actually working in you. In other words, when you go out and you live your life, you should live out your salvation as you live your life. And you should do that with a sense of fear or trembling that as you live out your salvation in your life, God is actually the one who is at work in what you do. And that should be a humbling thing. That should be even a frightening thing. That, yes, I'm in this situation at work or I'm in this situation at home. I'm in this situation in the community. And I'm being called to live out my salvation, live out my faith in this situation And as I make decisions, and as I say things, and as I do things, I should do it carefully with a sense of awareness that if I do this right, it is actually God working in what I say and what I do and how I live. And that is the introduction to the instruction in verse 14, which says, do all things, which again, what's he got in focus here? Living out your salvation. This is not merely about what you believe. This is about what you go out and do, how you go out and live. And his instruction here is do all that, go live out your salvation, do all things without complaining and disputing. Complaining uh, is actually a very common theme in the Bible. Um, If you just did a word search on complaining, it would return many results, some of which you would expect from, you know, the Israelites and their Old Testament wanderings, but also... Uh, Throughout the parables of Jesus in the New Testament, complaining is an idea that is repetitive in the Scriptures. Um, Disputing here is the idea of um, intellectual criticisms. In other words, you know, okay, I'll do this, but I don't think this is the best way to go, or "I I don't know about this, or it's criticisms that accompany complaining is the idea. So complaining is just grumbling and complaining. The disputing is the argumentative, critical nature behind the complaining. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Um, You can go ahead and turn there. We'll read from there in a second. But turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 is a good New Testament summary from the same writer, from Paul, to a church in Corinth of what happens in the Old Testament with Israel. Now... um, in the Old Testament, you rem- a lot of people will remember, easy to remember, Moses leading the Hebrew people who will be the Israelites, you know, from thenceforth, out of Egypt. Um, many people remember that story and the plagues and Moses and Pharaoh let my people go and even that as soon as Pharaoh lets them go, he regrets it and he, he goes after them with his army and there's the majestic crossing of the sea, and uh, Pharaoh and his troop are swallowed up by the waters uh, of the sea, and it's a story of, again, as, we, as I read from the commentary of Jonah this morning, our God is a saving God, and it's a story of that. But then they get to the wilderness, and God is taking them on a journey, and we're told in the Scripture that the path they take to what will become known as the promised land, 
is not the most direct route, but instead he takes them on a route that goes away, directly away from Egypt because of the Lord's awareness of the temptation they will have to return there. So he does not take them on a direct route. He takes them through what comes to be known as the wilderness of the desert wandering, and they complain along the way. They complain about, I wrote down five things just as notes. They complain about starvation and food. Um, they complain that, you know, you've let us out here to die in the desert. There's no food. And, and they complain and they complain and they complain. And God gives them manna. They complain about thirst. At first, they come upon a place where they think they're all going to be able to drink, but the water's bad and they complain about that. Then God gives them water, and they go a little bit further, and they're, they're thirsty again, and they complain about that. They complain about thirst. They complain about Moses. Uh, poor Moses. He's just the guy at the front of the group doing what God told him to do, capable neither of providing food or water, but they complain about him. They try to replace him more than once. They don't like him. At one point, they say, uh, we need a new leader who can take us back to Egypt. <laughs> uh, they complain about Moses. They complain about eating the same food over and over again. Um, after the Lord provides food regularly and faithfully to them, they complain that it's the same food, and they want something different. A little variety never hurts when you're wandering in the wilderness. They complain about the people who are in the promised land once they get there. That's the fifth one. Um, if you've ever been getting yourself geared up for a, a football game or a basketball game and you run out onto the field or the court and you'll just glance over at the other side warming up, it's always encouraging when there are a bunch of puny looking people and you're like, oh, we got this one in the bag, you know? When they looked at the promised land, they did not find puny-looking people, and they complained. It's like, those guys are dunking in warm-ups, and, you know, they, <laughs> they're full contact laying people out to get ready for the game. We're in trouble, and they complain. And the whole time, they think they are complaining to Moses and against Moses, but they are actually complaining against God. And every time it is taken personally. Um, and this 1 Corinthians chapter 10 passage explains that to us. I'll just read it briefly. Verse 1, Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea. That's the Exodus. You know, when I told you where they passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the spiritual fruit. And they all got out of Egypt together, they were all brought under the covenant of God at Mount Sinai. They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, that rock being Christ. In other words, they all had the same faith at the beginning of it. They, had the same, they were drinking the same message. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. At every various complaining point, you see the judgment of God emerge. 
Now, here is Paul's explanation of this in verse 6. Now, these things became our examples to the intent, the purpose of them, is that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now, he's going to give what I would argue are three, you could say are four, but three categories of mistakes that Israel made in the wilderness. And the first one says, And do not become idolaters, as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. In other words, they made their own gods. Don't do that. Now, he's talking to Christian people. He's not talking to pagans. Paul isn't. He's warning Christian people. If you do not heed the warnings of Scripture, the warnings of God, you will be tempted to raise up your own gods in your life, even after you have drank from the spiritual drink of Christ. Other things will emerge as superior and more important to you if you're not careful. Second thing, nor let us commit sexual immorality, as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Now we gasp at the number, but it's interesting that that's the second warning of Paul that he's extrapolating from here. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents, nor complain, which I would say that tempt Christ and complaining are equivalents because the issue of the serpents was a complaint. Nor let us complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happened to them as examples. They were written for our admonition. I hope you are admonished by them upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, this is serious. If you think, I'm set, I've made my profession of faith, I've been baptized, I serve the Lord, so I'm good forever. I don't need to worry about idolatry. I don't need to worry about sexual morality. I don't need to worry about complaining and murmuring and disputing and bitterness and what I do. I don't need to worry about these things. Paul's counsel to you is, Israel had been saved from Egypt and those people thought they were set. They'd been rescued from slavery. They had escaped all the plagues. They had miraculously gone across a sea of water. They thought they were set. They had experienced their encounter with God on Mount Sinai. They thought they were set. And they all but two of them died in the wilderness. It was their sons and daughters who got to cross. They all fell to judgment. And Paul's counsel is... Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So when he says here, do all things without complaining and disputing, he's not talking about maintaining good morale. You know, like at the workplace. Hey, let's have pizza day so everybody, you know, we improve morale. Or That's not what he's talking about. It's not a trite little token saying, hey, let's all have a good attitude today. That's not what this is. This is not a worldly message of let's have positive thinking. This is a spiritual warning from the apostle to you. Delivered on behalf of God. Be careful. Do not complain and do not criticize and grumble. Don't do it. Next part of the message. We see in verse 15 why 
so that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, if you take out the middle part of verses 14 and 15, this is a callback to how this passage begins. Do all things. As you live out your faith in the world around you, which is a crooked and perverse generation of people, that was true back then, it is true today, of people who embrace sin and don't think evil is evil and are morally ambivalent towards what's going on in the world around them and can hardly be spurred to conscience even when heinous things are happening around them. You should shine as light in darkness if you work out your salvation, if you do all things in this world which is doing nothing to the glory of God. But there are two ways to screw this up. One way, don't do the work. In other words, one way to not be a light in the world is to not do the work. Disobey the instruction of verse 14 where it says, do all things. Or verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Just ignore that part and only work when you feel like it, not do all things. Only uh, be a representative of Christ when it's convenient. Only give what isn't sacrificial. Like that kind of approach to Christian living. I'm going to be a comfortable Christian. One way to not be a light in darkness is to disobey the instruction here that, look, God is working in you. <laughs> Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Do all things. With the reverence of who God is, you could ignore that and mess this up. But the other way is to work very hard and to try to do all the right things. And the whole time while you're doing it, be grumbling and complaining and a miserable, bad attitude person about it. Never be happy. Never be joyful. Always be critical. Always be miserable. <laughs> always have a dispute. Always have a criticism. So that you're just dragging yourself through or other people are just dragging you through the things that you're supposed to be doing. That's another way to not be a light in darkness. And I'll tell you this, I don't want you all to be miserable people. That's a miserable way to live. I don't want you to be miserable. I don't think Paul wanted the Philippians to be miserable. It is a miserable, depressing way to live. Doing the right things because I don't have a choice. being drug along down the road with no hope, no joy, no faith. I'm doing it because they told me this is what we were doing. What a miserable way to live for the Lord. That's not a light in darkness. Who's going to be impressed by that? <laughs> Your friends and family going to be impressed by that? They're not. They're not. They're going to hear all of your grumbling and complaining and criticism and, well, I really think this, and well, I think this, and if they were smart, they'd do this. And they're going to think, oh, yeah. Mom and Dad really love the Lord. <laughs> they're really joyful, happy people. <laughs> Don't be that way. Don't be that way. This is a message of light shining. It's supposed to be light shining. By doing the things that we need to do and by doing them with an attitude of hope and faith and love, not misery. And I won't 
do what my dad used to say to me and my brother, which is, you know, you know, just keep it to yourself. <laughs> That's what my dad's instructions were. You know, we get to a, a hard day of work outside, and he's got two sons who really don't want to be working hard outside, and he just looks at it, hey, if you're going to complain, keep it to yourself, you know? I won't say that, because you shouldn't keep it to yourself. You should deal with the thoughts and the feelings. You should deal with it. It does not bring glory to God to be a miserable person. Um, I know that's easier for some people than others, but it's important. Last point, third point. Verse 16. Holding fast the word of life. Now, the word of life is not specifically the Bible. The word of life is the gospel. In other words, the word that brings life, salvation. Holding fast to your salvation, which comes to us in the Bible, okay, but, but understand this is a gospel statement here. Holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Paul hopes to rejoice in the future. He says the day of Christ. So this is Paul. I want you to hold fast to the gospel so that in the future, someday, at the return of Jesus, because of your salvation and because of your work in Christ, I will get to rejoice. So, hold fast to the gospel because in the future, I want the joy of knowing what you believe and how you have lived, and I, I'm looking at future joy. That's the first statement. The second statement is present joy. Look at verse 17. Yes, and if I am now in the present being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Um, the language that Paul uses here of being poured out as a drink offering here, or being poured out, it's the kind of, there were drink offerings that the priest would offer before the Lord, and they would offer these drink offerings, and the, the offerings would be consumed in the fire. They'd pour a drink offering into fire, basically. When Paul used the language being poured out uh, elsewhere in Timothy, in his letters to Timothy, he's talking about the potential that he's going to lose his life. That is, it, the current trial he's in is going to cost his life. So what he's saying here is, remember, he's a, he's a prisoner in Rome. He's going to stand before a Caesar who could kill him, okay? So what he says is, if now, as a prisoner with death potentially before him, if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice, again, the idea of a drink offering as a sacrifice in the Old Testament, as a sacrifice and service of your faith, because why was Paul a prisoner? Because of his missionary work in churches just like the Philippians. That's why he was a prisoner. He's going around servicing the Lord, serving the people by performing this work of mission. And that's what had got him into this situation. So he says, if I'm going to die now as a sacrifice of God in service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Now that's a remarkable thing to say. If you cannot relate to that, if that bores you, 
or seems powerless. It's probable and at least possible that your life is not being lived as a service to the faith of others. This is a man who had lived his life and was living his life as a service to the faith of other people. He wasn't going to church for his children. He wasn't trying to get some moral value out of this. The way he lived was a life to serve the faith of other people. And in doing that, even if it was going to cost him his life, he could say, I am glad and I rejoice. Now, you can criticize that if you want. You can say, well, I'm not sure I believe him. How happy could he possibly be? He says he's glad. I'm not sure I believe that. He says he's rejoicing. Maybe he's just trying to encourage them. But I have known this joy. I have known this. You have known this. Many of you have known this. What is the answer to living a miserable Christian existence? It's work out, live out your faith in service to the faith of others. Whether that's evangelistically, in other words, in service to the faith of others, by shining as a light in darkness and calling people to faith, that's a way to live in service to someone's faith. Calling someone to faith who doesn't have any. Or in service to faith by discipling and teaching and exhorting and partnering with believers as they go through their life and the struggles in faith. Both of those things summarize the commission that Jesus has given us. Now, what's the commission that he leaves us with? Go into all nations, right? Baptizing them and teaching them all the things that I've commanded you. In other words, evangelism and discipleship. Paul's life was about those two things. This letter is not particularly evangelistic. He'd already been to Philippi. The people had already gotten saved. They had already believed the gospel. This letter is discipleship, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded. And Paul is saying, yeah, my life on this earth may be drawing to a close, but I rejoice and I'm glad in the present because it's a life that's been in service to your faith. I can live with my circumstances if I haven't wasted my life. You say, well, it would still be nice to you know, have a family and a big house and good job. If living my life in service to the Lord compromises some of the other goals I have in my life, then maybe I'll find a happy blend or a mixture between the two. But... One way or another, you're going to die. Christian, I'm talking to a Christian, you're going to die. So one way or another, you're going to face the extinguishing of your life as Paul is facing the extinguishing of his. What he's saying here is, if I am facing the extinguishing of my life, if I'm in the final hours, I can walk to the gallows glad and rejoicing. 
You might say, well, I know how to make myself glad and rejoice. When I go home this afternoon and I lay down on my couch and I turn the football on and I take my nap, it's going to be a good time. I'm going to rest. When I go out to my garage, when I go out into the yard, whatever it is for you, I know how to make myself glad and rejoice. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if I am facing death, I can be glad and rejoice. If you live your life for any other purpose, then the purpose that God has called you to, if you're not faithful to that calling, Christian, death is not something you should face with a a gladness and a happiness. There should be some sense of mourning that I've wasted. I've, I've just wasted this. This is what he has in mind in 1 Corinthians when he says that there will be people who go before the Lord and they will escape the fire of hell, (laughs) but they will enter into heaven as though through the flame and the works of their life will be judged as it were a building and the fire will judge it. 1 Corinthians 5, I believe. Maybe 3, 3 or 5. Watch, it'll be 4. Someone will hit me with that later. And some people will have built with gold, silver, and precious stone. And when, when the work of their life is eternally judged, they will have nothing but value left. That's what Paul's saying. I can go to the end glad and rejoicing. If this is the end, I can meet it well. But there will be other people, even Christian people, who praise God their faith in the Lord Jesus was legitimate and saving. But they built their life, as it says in that passage, with wood, hay, and stubble. They did not work out their salvation with fear and trembling. They were careless with how they lived and with what they did. They lived for themselves. They did not think, it is my privilege to live out my life as though God is working through me. They did not consider life that way. They built a life of worthless trinkets. They build a life of pointless purposes, of vain objectives, where they value things that God doesn't value. And when it is revealed in heaven what they have built up, it will be consumed as wood, hay, and stubble is. And Paul writes of that for them, they will suffer much loss. Now, they're They're in heaven. (laughs) So it's not all bad. And yet, his verdict, they will suffer much loss. Watching a life that could have been lived go up in flames. A wasted opportunity. Life. That is no way to be glad or happy. To look back and say, I've wasted this. I did not say what might have been said. I did not do what might have been done. I did not care about what I should have cared about. If Paul were facing death and he knew that to be true of himself, I'm not sure he'd be saying here, I'll rejoice and be glad. Um, I've said this before and it's true. Either I will bury my wife or she will bury me. Either I will bury my children or they will bury me. But there is no getting out of this alive for all of us. We may live in happy Thanksgiving and Christmases now, but we are going to begin to die. 
my family, to people that I love. My parents are going to die. My grandparents have already begun to die. And as happily as I might distract myself now, I wonder if it is truly our aim to meet death happily and glad that we have not wasted what we've been given. Here is the good news, the call in verse 18 of Paul. For this same reason, you also be glad and rejoice with me. And this is the call of Philippians. When he says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, he's not merely calling you to put on some fake happy attitude. There are plenty of people in the world around you who just seem like happy people all the time. It's not the kind of happiness that sustains spiritual life. This is not pie-in-the-sky idealism. When Paul calls the Philippians to rejoice, he calls them to rejoice in their work and service to the Lord, knowing that everything they suffer, everything they give, has value to God. That their works might be judged and be found meaningful and that they don't live a purposeless life. Um, I sure hope we don't live purposeless lives. As we turn our attention now to the Lord's Supper and we think about what Jesus has done for us, let's remember that He did not live a purposeless life. He too was born in the flesh and He was given opportunity to live just as you and I are and He lived His life with a focused purpose. Let's pray together. Father, the Son of Man had no great estate on this earth. He did not give himself to a wife and children. He did not accumulate great wealth. He rejected attempts to make him a king or to engage in some rebellion. He spoke hard truths that he knew would make the crowds that came to him for healings and miracles go away. He said of himself that foxes have dens and birds have nests, but that he had no place to lay his head. And he died a sinner's death, my death, a death not worthy of him. But he died a sinner's death. And as we read in Isaiah 53, it was for the joy that was before him. Because he did not live a purposeless life. Therefore, you have highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Father, help us to follow in his example, to not be miserable or lazy, but to serve you with gladness, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that you who work in us. Help us to honor you as we remember this holy sacrament that you've given us. It's in Jesus' name that I pray.